Good morning, church. There we go. Please remain standing for the reading of God's word. Out of thankfulness to God for giving us his word, when I finish the reading, I will conclude by saying, this is the word of the Lord. And we invite you to respond by saying, thanks be to God. Our scripture this morning is from James chapter 5, verses 13 through 20. Feel free to follow along with me on the screens. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth, and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Well, thank you, Kelly. You guys can grab a seat if you haven't already done so. Uh, good morning. My name is Ian. I have the privilege of uh, being one of the pastors here. If I haven't had a chance to meet you, uh, thank you so much for uh, being here today. I get the privilege of opening up God's Word for us most weeks, and that is uh, what's happening here today as well. And we have uh, come right now to the very end of a sermon series that we've been in all fall, uh, kind of walking through the book of James together. And I'm not sure for those of you who have been around how that sermon series has felt, but I know as someone who has preached most of this book, it's been, uh, it's been a bit intense at times. Uh, and so it's good to, I think, land the plane here a little bit today. And James' letter has been forcing us to consider over and over again this, this kind of reality of whether or not we have a living faith, a living, vibrant faith, or a dead faith that really is no faith at all. James is warning over and over again against just a mere mental assent that says that we believe in Jesus, and yes, we're a Christian, but with no life full of good works and visible fruit of faith. James is confronting us with that over and over again. As we come to the concluding section today, I love that James ends not with an individualistic application of all that he's written, but instead he wants us to consider what it means to persevere with a living faith together as the family of God in the church of Jesus Christ. Because I think sometimes we can get overwhelmed by all of the challenges that James presents while we forget that he's writing to a church. He's writing to a community of people. He's not telling us to go home and work this out on your own. He's telling us within the church to work out these things together. Uh, recently this year, I had a chance to listen to a podcast that was an oral history of the TV show, The Office. Any Office fans out there? If you like The Office, it's a fascinating listen. Would encourage you to go ahead and check that out. Uh, but one of the biggest questions that the podcast was exploring is this. Why in the world is The Office so popular with young people? Right, over and over again, it is the most streamed show on Netflix. And even the actors and the show creators were like, why do young people like this? They've never worked in an office, nor will they ever work in an office that looks like this. So what's the draw? And so, and maybe in the same way, you know, Alex Trebek just passed away, why is Jeopardy so popular? 
I mean, how many of you love to play Trivial Pursuit in your free time? I mean, I do, but I'm guessing I'm the unique one there, right? I mean, why is it that Jeopardy is so popular? Why is The Office so popular? What's going on there? Well, as they did interviews and research, there's actually a link between the two of them. Uh, They concluded this, that there is a kind of stability and reliability with these TV shows. There's a predictability when you turn on The Office or when you watch Jeopardy. You see, in The Office, they would sit in the exact same place every day. They would wear the same rotations of clothing, right? The break room is always the break room. There's a predictability to it. Jeopardy, on every evening at the same time, right? In my household, it's after Wheel of Fortune at 7. You get Jeopardy right there at 7.30. Same introduction. It's the same host. It's the same format. But yet, there's an incredible draw to these shows, isn't there? Those who watch both say it's often just nice to have it on in the background. Well, the way that James talks about the church in this passage I think he's getting at a similar concept. The church ought to have the same kind of impact on our individual lives. In the midst of the ups and downs of life, the disappointments and the joys, the predictable things and the things that come at us out of left field, we in the church are meant to have a stable, reliable, predictable thing in one another's lives. See, in God's good design, there's actually great power in this. This is why one of our core values, by the way, is finding beauty in the ordinary. There is something beautiful in just the ordinary predictability of what we do here in the church. I think James is going to draw our attention to that in this passage. So as we walk into this, here's, I think, our main idea today, what James is leading us to see. The church showcases the gospel through a deep interconnected, interconnectedness, faith-filled prayers, and loving pursuits of those wandering. The church showcases the gospel through a deep interconnectedness, faith-filled prayers, and loving pursuits of those wandering. And before we jump in, let's pray. Let's ask the Lord to help us in his word today. Uh, Father, we thank you uh, for the book of James. We thank you for the chance we've had to walk through this together. And even though it's challenging and it confronts us in many ways, uh, Lord, we know that it is your word for us. And so as we seek to preach this passage today, as I seek to preach this passage, as we seek to understand what it means, as we look back on all you've taught us in this series, I pray today that you would give us ears to hear, eyes to see, and hearts to respond afresh again to the good news of the gospel of Jesus. So help us to see where, as a community, we might be missing it. Help draw us in your kindness to greater obedience and faithfulness. Help us to be a church that just feels like Jesus that the ethic of our community here is one that mirrors our Savior and the good news of the gospel. May your word inform us towards that end today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As we walk through this passage, I want to explore three different aspects of our life together in the church. I want to talk about a connected church, a praying church, and then a pursuing church. Connected, praying, and pursuing church. Let's begin with connected. And before we jump into the specifics of what James is exhorting us here, I want us to see some of the assumptions and the context behind these exhortations. So three times in those verses that Kelly read for us, James uses the phrase, if anyone among you, if anyone among you. Twice he talks about how we ought to relate to one another. By the way, the one another phrase shows up 59 times in the New Testament letters. You see, James is assuming in the audience that he's writing to that there are those who are among them. 
He's assuming you are living within the context of meaningful, connected community, linking arms together to follow Jesus. He's assuming you know who the one another's are in your life that you ought to apply the Christian life in the context of. Let's look a little closer. He says the community ought to know a few things about one another. The first is they should know if anyone is suffering, fearful, or sick at the very beginning of the passage. And here's the thing, you have to be in one another's lives to know that, right? Even if you just kind of have a social media relationship, typically we only post the happy things on there, right? We have to be in one another's lives to know, is someone suffering? Is someone cheerful? Are they experiencing blessing in this season? Is someone sick? We have to know what's going on. And beyond just a, hey, how's it going when we all answer good, or like I said a couple weeks ago, busy, right? There's something else deeper going on we have to know about one another. Secondly, the community ought to know who the elders are the, of the church are. Right? The elders or the pastors in the New Testament, those are used synonymous, are to be the spiritual shepherds of the flock, of the church. They're responsible for caring for your soul. And it would actually be impossible for someone to follow James's exhortations here if they don't know who they're supposed to call, if they don't know who the elders are, if that community is not made that clear. So they ought to know what's going on in one of those lives. They ought to know who their elders are. And then lastly, in those concluding verses, James exhorts the community that they ought to pursue those who wander from among them. He's not talking about evangelism here. He's not saying go out on the street and proclaim the gospel to people. There's nothing wrong with that, of course. That's part of what it means to follow the Great Commission. But here he says, from those who are among you, those in your church community who begin to wander from the faith, it's our responsibility to go after them. You see, there's some assumptions behind those statements, aren't there? Because here's the thing, if you are gonna go after someone who's wandering, you have to be close to them. We all know what it's like when someone makes a complete shipwreck of their faith, when it crashes and burns in miraculous fashion. But James is saying, well before that, usually what happens, not always, but usually is a period of wandering a little exploration off the narrow road of faith, or just a little experimentation with sin. And James is saying, listen, don't let one another go down that path. Don't let sin bait and hook us. Together, we ought to be responsible for one another. So the assumption here, if you can't get the feel yet, is a deep interconnected community, one that truly embraces being the household of God, being brothers and sisters in Christ. And for lack of a better phrase, James assumes that we are all up in one another's business. Okay, in a loving way, in a good way, but we ought to know what's going on in one another's lives. Now, there's a few reasons why we might resist this, why we might not want this interconnected community. I'd like to quickly move through a few of them. Uh, one of the things could be past hurts from a community of faith. Right? This is a real thing. I don't want to minimize this. There are times when something goes awry in the church and we get deeply wounded and hurt in the midst of that. It might take a slow, wise re-entry process, but that could be a reason. Uh, secondly, it could, be because, it could be because of vulnerability and risk. Listen, I want to be very clear to you. Community, real community, is always risky. It's always risky. We will not do this perfectly. Expectations might go and will go unmet. We will sin against one another. We will fall short. It's risky. It's vulnerable to put yourself out there. Quite frankly, it's hard work, and sometimes we don't like hard work. 
Right? Maybe you're starting over with a new church. Maybe you're in a new location. Maybe you're in a new season of life. And listen, relationships are just hard. Real relationships are hard. Or maybe it's because it's uncomfortable and just inconvenient for us. I mean, if the church is really embracing the gospel and the gospel is bearing fruit, what's going to happen is it's going to put you into a family of people that you might not naturally like. Right? You don't like hanging out with the person who always goes for the side hug. Right? You're like, what's going on with you? Why are you so awkward in interactions with me? Right? Let's be real. We're a weird people. There's a wide variety of types of people in this room, and it's a beautiful, messy thing. But you might not want to embrace the inconvenience and the awkwardness of that. And listen, I'm sympathetic to all of this. But brothers and sisters, there is no plan B. God has no plan B. Jesus died for the church. He died for his bride. His design is for us to live together in the beautiful mess that that means. David Platt puts it this way. He says, the church is one of the God-ordained means that God uses to keep us faithful. God is sovereign, and he does the preserving, but he does it through the church, looking out for, caring for, and loving one another to keep one another from sin. This is yet another reason we ought to be involved in the lives of others in the church. God has ordained brothers and sisters who will share life with you and keep you close to him to keep you obedient to his commands and to persevere you until the Lord comes back. This is the God-ordained way that we persevere together. So the obvious question is, are you connected in this way? Maybe a better question is, are we at the King's Church, do we have this kind of community? If you are a member here, are people close enough to you that at least a handful of people know if you're suffering, know if you're sick, know if life is going well? Do you know who you are responsible for and who is responsible for you? Are you living in a deep, interconnected way within the community of faith? Listen, you're here this morning. Half the battle, right? Awesome. But do you know the people around you? James is calling us to a deep interconnectedness. That's a connected church. Yeah, but secondly, James's more narrow focus here is on a praying church. This is clearly what is on his mind, especially in these first six verses of this passage. He references prayer seven times. So as we walk through these, there's a few categories I think he's giving us that we ought to hold on to. Okay, and the first is this, that we ought to pray in every circumstance. We ought to pray in every circumstance. Look again at verse 13. He says, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. I think he's actually alluding to the Psalms here. And here's the reality. No matter what season or circumstance you find yourself in, James says you ought to pray your way through it. See, there's a few ways you can approach the natural ups and downs of life. You can think your way through life and try to plan at every single turn, trying to get out ahead. Or you can react your way through life. And you can just go with the flow and respond as it happens. Or you could do what James is advocating, which is praying your way through life. There is not a circumstance or a situation that we encounter that we should not pray. This is very similar to what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5. He says, rejoice always. This is a great little Thanksgiving tag here. Okay, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. How often do we want to know God's will? God, what is your will for my life? That's his will for your life. Be thankful in every circumstance and pray without ceasing. 
We are to pray in every circumstance. Secondly, we are to pray for the sick. We're to pray for the sick. And we need to do some work here because there's some tricky things in this passage. Look at verse 14. He says, is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. James says, when someone in the community is sick, and by the way, sick enough where they can't go travel somewhere, but the elders must be called to visit them, they're to make that sickness known. Now, part of the ministry and responsibility of pastors and elders is a ministry of prayer. They're to give special attention to the word and prayer along with the oversight of the church. And so if someone's sick, they're to call the elders. They're to make known their sickness. And then when the elders come, they're to do a few things. The first is that they're to anoint the sick with oil. Now, there's a lot of interpretations with what's going on here. Some argue this is for medicinal reasons, that this was a medical reality, which that is true in one sense. If you read the parable of the Good Samaritan, one of the ways that the Samaritan binds up the wounds is by pouring oil on them. Okay, this is before modern medicine. This is one of the ways that they treated people medicinally. Others, especially in the Roman Catholic tradition, would argue that this is a sacramental act. That in their church tradition, uh, this is the idea of last rites, if you're familiar with that. Uh, and they would go and a priest would perform this. They would anoint them with oil. And the idea is that this act was to impart grace to this person before death. Now, there's a lot we could talk about there, but I think the issue with that interpretation is James actually expects this person to be healed. He says they're going to be raised up. They're going to be healed from their sickness, and the emphasis isn't on the anointing, but on something else. So instead, I would argue this. The anointing with oil is meant to be symbolic. In the Old Testament, oil was used in the consecration ceremonies for priests and kings. Right, that seems to be the feel of the passage, because to consecrate someone is to set them apart for special attention from the Lord. So James says, call the elders, and when they anoint you with oil, what they're doing is they are praying on your behalf and setting you apart for special attention from the Lord. That's why the anointing is done in the name of the Lord. That's where the power comes from. It's the prayer of faith. It's the name of the Lord where the saving comes from, not from the oil itself. But the elders come and they anoint with oil. They consecrate you before the Lord. Now, James continues with some confusing things because we need to wrestle with this. He seems to have assurance that the person's going to be healed, doesn't he? I mean, it's pretty blunt. He says, the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. However, you and I both know that's not how life always works, right? Oftentimes, we have prayed for people who were sick. Right? We've done that in this church before, people who were sick, but yet they, did not, they were not healed in this life. And this is a hard and painful reality, isn't it? So how do we reconcile this? James has this assurance they're going to be healed, but yet we know in our experience this isn't always the case. Let's jump into that for a minute. I think we have to acknowledge there's a spectrum here that we're probably going to fall on. On the one hand, you have uh, more of these kind of faith healer ministries that are sometimes borderline on prosperity theology, kind of this name it and claim it movement that just says, hey, if you have enough faith because of what James is saying here, then you're going to be healed. And there's no doubt that that has been twisted and abused. And without going too far down that road, we just have to acknowledge the wider teaching of the Bible would prevent us from that interpretation. Right? The apostle Paul himself prays 
Three times in 2 Corinthians, he tells us that the Lord would remove this suffering or sickness, what he calls the thorn in the flesh, from him, and the Lord said no. So we have to be very careful with that. On the other end of the spectrum, though, and I'm guessing this is where most of us are, is we just tend to be skeptical about this. We're skeptical about any kinds of quote-unquote miraculous or supernatural healing. That's where I'm guessing we're at. And at the end of the day, we just really don't believe that God works in this way. Maybe we've had an experience where we prayed and healing just didn't happen. Maybe it's because we live in a world of modern medicine, right, where we have unprecedented access to medical care for things that would have literally killed us in most of the rest of human history. And this is where I think maybe the ancient world realized their dependency upon the Lord more so than we do today. See, it's much easier for us to be very self-reliant because we can always pop an aspirin rather than dependent on the Lord when we face sickness. They had a sense of their need for the Lord. When plagues and sickness and things went through a community, people in droves died. And maybe there's something for us to learn even in our current moment of this pandemic in that as well. With both ends of the spectrum, we have to be careful we don't fall off the cliff. But for those who are skeptical especially, we ought to affirm there is no doubt that the Lord has and can sovereignly intervene to heal the sick. We ought to pray and ask him to do so. We shouldn't allow the abuses of a prosperity theology, a name it and claim it movement to make our hearts grow cold in the face of what James is offering us here. And even in a world of modern medicine, shouldn't we acknowledge that God is the author of all of that common grace that he's given us? There is always a sovereign and spiritual dimension in our healing. We ought to humbly cry out and allow him to shape our prayers in desperation when someone is sick. But there's a deeper reality here. There is a sense in which the Lord will indeed raise up the one who is sick. Notice James doesn't say when that's going to happen. And in fact, in the New Testament, when that word of raising up is used, it most often refers to resurrection. See, brothers and sisters, we can pray and we can ask and beg that the Lord would move and raise up the sick, but guess what? He is going to do that. There is a day that is coming. It's the day that we're about to look forward to in this Advent season where the Lord will come back in all sickness, in all diseases, in every single last little drop of COVID-19 will be wiped away forever. It's going to be gone. And we long for that day. He will indeed raise up his saints in glory. So we can pray with confidence. We can anoint. We can set someone aside. We can pray for them. And we can trust that the Lord will indeed raise up those who are his because he himself has conquered the grave, hasn't he? So we pray for the sick. Thirdly, we pray for sin. The second half of verse 15. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Now, what does sickness have to do with sin? Because James seems to be connecting the two here. Why bring up this discussion? Well, again, I think we have to be careful here. On the one hand, not every sickness is a direct result of sin. There's this really important passage in John chapter 9. Jesus and his disciples are walking, and they pass a man that had been born blind. So from birth, he had been blind. And the disciples ask the question that was just common understanding of what's going on. They ask, Jesus, who sinned, this man or his parents? that this person was born blind. 
And Jesus doesn't play with those categories. Jesus says, no, no, no. It's not that they sinned or that he sinned, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. You see, Jesus is busting those categories wide open. You can't always draw a one-to-one connection between sickness and sin. But, on the other hand, sin can indeed lead to sickness, can't it? I mean, the consequences of a life of sin can lead to physical ailments, right? A life of sexual morality, a life committed to substance abuse, or even just behaviors that contribute stress to our lives, they have a physical effect, don't they? And in an ultimate sense, why is sickness here to begin with? Because of sin. So James might be uncomfortably crossing some lines that I think the Bible does connect for us. Can't always draw a one-to-one connection, but James is saying, listen, sin and sickness, there's something about them that go hand-in-hand together. And here's the thing I think we know to be true. When we are sick, it's a humbling experience, isn't it? I hate being sick. I'm miserable, right? I would not make it in pre-modern medicine times. I'm just, I'm beyond, the Lord would have taken me a long time ago, okay? We're miserable when we sick. We're humble, but doesn't that lay bare what's actually going on in our hearts? What's actually going on in our souls? Right, when James is telling, hey, when someone's sick, you ought to pray and confess your sins to one another. He's saying, wake up to your spiritual reality. Sickness can lead to death. When we think about death, when we think about our own weaknesses, our own ailments, our own just inability to solve our own problems, what better time than to repent? What better time than to confess our sins? I think Tim Keller says it helpfully. He says, sickness is very humbling. Sickness knocks you down. So often you will be able to see sins. You'll be able to admit flaws that you couldn't at any other time. Sometimes the spiritual healing and confessing and getting right with God, it actually causes physical healing. But other times the physical sickness actually causes the spiritual healing. The Bible is saying here that you must always do them together. You must always use physical sickness as a time for spiritual renewal. You must always make sure you're working on spiritual healing as well as physical healing at the same time. You getting the idea here? By the way, James, he almost mismatches his description. He says that the prayer will save the one who is sick. And then if you confess your sins and pray for one another, you will be healed from your sins. He's mixing those up for us in a way to awaken our reality that, listen, there's no better time to repent. There's no better time to confess. There's no better time to take stock of where you're at with the Lord and one another than when you are sick. So listen, what if rather than just binge watching The Office on Netflix and drowning NyQuil right until we can't, we can fall asleep and just get rid of all of the ailments that we feel, what if before we did that, we actually prayed? What if in the face of our own weakness, we asked the Lord, Lord, what can you teach me about myself through this? Right? There's no better time than when we feel weak to be reminded of the strengthening grace of Jesus, that he meets us where we're at. So we ought to pray for the sick, but we also ought to pray for our sin. Right, and then lastly on prayer, number four, is just simply the power of prayer. Verse 16 again, he says, the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. His whole point here is that prayer actually does something. It actually does something. It's not just a nice gesture. It's not just a nice tip of the hat towards God that we're acknowledging he's there and I'm reaching out to you. 
No, the prayer of the righteous person is powerful and effective. But don't we struggle to believe that on a functional level? How often is prayer the first place that you go in your life? How often do we actually set aside time to devote ourselves to prayer? Sam Mulberry says that many of us do not pray as we should. And one of the reasons for this is that we do not believe our prayers will make much of a difference. Deep down, we don't think they will change anything. And so prayer can become just a token thing, a gesture to others, a way of checking in with God without really expecting anything major to happen. Now, lest we become too discouraged there of our lack of righteousness, James points us to Elijah. James points us to Elijah. Look, verse 17, he says, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. So why bring up Elijah? Well, he's referencing a story back in 1 Kings 17, 18. You can look, read that this week. It's a it's a pretty incredible passage. Elijah, as this prophet, is, is literally showboating over the prophets of Baal who are doing all this self-affliction and all these crazy rituals to try to get their God to show off his power. And all Elijah does is pray. And the Lord literally changes the weather pattern. He holds back the rain for as long as Elijah just simply prays, Lord, don't make it rain. And then the minute he prays that it would, it comes. But then, here's the thing with Elijah. In the very next chapter, you know what Elijah's doing? He's not standing at the hilltop proclaiming the glory and majesty of God and showboating his victory. He's pouting and hiding in a cave. You see, the righteous person of Elijah in one moment was dialed in to what God is doing, but yet in the next moment, he looks an awful lot like us, doesn't he? And that's exactly what James is saying. Elijah, not the righteous Elijah, Elijah, a man with a nature like ours. Listen, if we are discouraged in our prayer, some of the reason that we can do that is because we're looking inward. We can say, well, God says a prayer of a righteous person is at work, and I'm not a righteous person. But don't forget, your righteousness is not from your own abilities. Elijah's righteousness and his powerful prayers were not because Elijah could control the weather. He's not some superhero. He's a man with a nature like ours. But guess what? He prayed in confidence. He prayed that the Lord was going to do something incredible in that moment. He prayed a big prayer, which means, brothers and sisters, we can pray a big prayer. We can pray for healing. We can pray for conversions. We can pray for things to happen that are outside of our control. It's popular to ask this question, but it's so appropriate for this passage. If all of your prayers from the past few months were all of a sudden granted by God, would anything big even happen? What are you praying right now? Are you praying big, kingdom-sized, God is the sovereign, omnipotent creator and sustainer over all type prayers? Because James is saying you ought to. You ought to pray. You ought to pray big prayers. So much more we could talk about here, but church, are we a praying people? Is our community marked by devotion to prayer to God for one another? Is that what's gluing us together? What would it look like for us to pray some big prayers? What would it look for, like for us to grow in this way? James is urging us to consider that. So as a connected church is also a praying church, there's one more aspect that he points us to, and that's a pursuing church. Look at verse 19. 
my brothers or my brothers and sisters, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. By the way, it is so on brand for James not to end with a flowery benediction, but a commandment to go and do something. So James is uh, consistent all the way through the end. So let's define our terms here. What does this mean for someone to wander from the truth? Well, it doesn't mean you just see a one-off moment. It means there's a pattern happening in someone's life within the community of faith that you care about. There's a pattern going on that is leading them away from God, away from faith and obedience, and away from the church, away from the community of believers. And James is saying when we sense this happening... It is our responsibility to go after them. James is saying that my brother or my sister's wandering from the truth is not just their problem. It's my problem. It's our problem together. And notice while the elders are the ones who are to go and visit the sick, this is written to anyone in the church. Now listen, of course, the elders are going to lead out on this as best as we can. But listen, this is a call to the church. If anyone sees anyone else wandering, It is your responsibility to go after them. Every single Christian has a responsibility to do this for one another in the local church. It turns out that ancient haunting comment from Cain after he kills his brother Abel is still relevant today. We are indeed our brother's keeper. We are our brother and sister's keeper. Now here's what that requires. It requires being proactive. Right, again, wandering is kind of a slight tick in the wrong direction. We have to be up in one another's lives to see when someone's just a little bit off kilter. But what happens is, right, if you're sailing, and I have zero experience in this, I'm not even sure why I'm going down this analogy, but we'll we'll try it, okay? When you're sailing and you just turn a little bit, no big deal at the beginning, but two, three miles from now, major problem. James is saying, if someone wanders from the truth, it might not look like a big deal right now, but don't let that go on. Don't let that go further, or who knows what direction they might be taken. You see, sin wants to take us down the slippery slope that James has already described back in chapter 1, of the temptation of luring and enticing our own desires, which then gives birth to sin, which then brings forth death. Which, by the way, what does he invoke here again? Death. Sin is serious business is a literal issue of life and death. And the way to stop that slippery slope is to start back at the top, is to deal with the temptations, the lure of sin, the things that cause us to wander. And here's the thing, you are powerless on your own to deal with that. You are powerless on your own to deal with that. When you are faced with a temptation that's becoming more and more enticing and luring, you're not gonna talk your way out of that. But you know who can? is a brother or sister who comes over and gently knocks you on the head and says, hey, don't do that. Right? Hey, you don't want to follow down that path. Right? That's how we stop one another from the devastating effects of sin. And listen, sin wants to isolate you. It wants to divide people up, and it wants you to hide what's going on. James knows that, and he says, you have to be a community that is proactive. Be on the lookout. If we're concerned about someone reach out to them. If you hear something that sounds off, follow up on that. If we notice someone has been absent, 
We jump in on a conversation with them. Listen, the Holy Spirit could be the one bringing that to your mind. The Holy Spirit could be bringing a person just out of nowhere that maybe you ought to follow up with. And listen, I get it. This requires often uncomfortable, awkward conversations. Nobody likes being confrontational, really. And no one likes being confrontational about someone else's wandering, okay? So it's important that we ask how this looks. How does this look? It has to be done from a posture of love and gentleness. Love and gentleness. Galatians 6 urges us to do this. Paul says there, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, i.e., if anyone is wandering, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. He's saying, don't go into that pridefully. Don't go in there where you're the hammer and they're the nail. No, no, no. Go in there as a fellow sinner and someone who knows that they too could wander at any moment and gently remind them of the good news of Jesus. Gently remind them that there is grace and mercy. And the reason why we go after the wanderer with love and gentleness is because this is precisely how Jesus has gone after us. This is precisely how Jesus has acted towards us. We have all wandered. We have all gone our own way. We have strayed from the truth. We have pursued sin when we ought to be pursuing Jesus. But yet Jesus came running after us with love and gentleness. He is the one who came to seek and save the lost and the wandering and the suffering and the sick and to bring us back to God through his own life, death, and resurrection. And that's where I want to land this passage and really this whole series. A church that is connected, but deeply interconnected with one another. A church that is praying faith-filled prayers. A church that lovingly pursues one another proactively is a church that will feel like Jesus himself. The gospel of Jesus will just permeate through a people who are committed to those things. You see, a few times in this passage, it sounds like us praying is what's healing people. It sounds like us going after the wanderers is what's saving them from death, right? Saving their soul from falling off of the cliff. But we know that's not exactly right. But James is saying, as you embody that, it's almost as if Jesus is right there in your midst. And that's the point. As we commit to these things, God uses us. He uses the church. He uses broken and imperfect people, but people who are vessels for his glory and his ministry and his work to showcase Jesus to one another and to the watching world. Brothers and sisters, if we're going to persevere with a living faith, a faith that's not lackadaisical, but one that takes the claims of Jesus seriously, a living faith that bears our cross and walks the narrow road of faith, a living faith that is evidenced by good works, if we're going to have a living faith, we need one another. We cannot do this alone. We must persevere together. But at the end of the day, we can have a living faith together because we worship and serve a living Savior. Jesus is in the business of making dead things alive. That includes you and me, and that includes a community of people rallying around that. He is at work in our midst. So are you with him, and are you with his people? That is the invitation to any and all who will come to him in faith. And that's why this church exists. 
that wherever that meets you today, I hope that you will take him seriously. I hope you will take his people seriously. What it means to have a living faith. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the encouragement that James has given us here today that no matter what life might throw at us, no matter in times of suffering or in times of joy, in times of sickness or in times of health, when things just seem to be clicking and when everything seems to just be hard, Lord, we know that you are gracious, you are kind, you will meet us where we are at with what we need, and so often, Lord, you do that through your people. So God, we thank you for this church. We thank you for the gift of your people. I pray that every single person in this room here today would be encouraged. They would be, stir- they would be stirred and spurred on to love and good deeds by the people in this room, and that for those who are disconnected, that they might be connected to your body. Jesus, we thank you that you have died for your bride. Thank you that you have brought us back to God through your sacrificial death and resurrection. I pray that each and every person in this room would be settled in that and that you would continue to accomplish your good purposes in and through us. pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.